Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday afternoon, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day, and we are underway with the NCAA tournament. So I'm here, of course, to talk with my co-host, Tyler Metcalf, about all things NBA Draft. So Tyler, how are you doing today? Nick, I'm fantastic. Very excited for this upcoming weekend of college games the the first weekend was awesome as usual um so just really excited to kind of talk about what we've got coming up this weekend and you know how some of these guys may translate to the nba so today in light of the fact that we are right in the middle of the ncaa tournament we are going to do a sweet 16 prospect preview so we will review some of our favorite prospects on the 16 teams remaining in the tournament. And we are going to start with the number one overall seeded Gonzaga Bulldogs. They are facing Arkansas in their next tournament game on Thursday. And with Gonzaga, the headline prospect obviously is Chet Holmgren, but they have a few other players in Drew Timmy, Andrew Nemhard, Julian Strother, who are likely to get drafted at some point and a few other players on the bench who maybe are 2023, 2024 guys. Strother, I think, in particular, falls into that 2023, 2024 grouping. But let's start with Chet Holmgren, who consensus has him as one of the top three picks in this draft. We over here at No Ceilings have been pretty heavily on the Chet bandwagon for number one overall pick. And I thought their round of 32 game against Memphis was particularly interesting for the Chet Holmgren proposition because he didn't have the greatest game, certainly not statistically, nine points, nine rebounds, a few blocks. But the thing that intrigued me the most was that it certainly seems to me like the people who are down on Chet are going to take a few moments from this game and sort of blow them up, notably the moment where Jalen Duran shoved him out of the way and dunked all over him on a possession. But... I think those people are also going to overlook the fact that the Gonzaga defense was miles better with Chet Holmgren on the floor than when he was off. And this is a Gonzaga team that was the number one seed in the tournament. They have a ton of players, as I already mentioned at the top, besides Chet Holmgren, who are top flight college players, likely NBA prospects, yet Chet Holmgren made all the difference for their defense. And Memphis scored like crazy in the few minutes that he was off the floor. And when he struggled with foul trouble in the first half, that really got Memphis going. And when he was back on the floor, you know, they got back to struggling to score. So one incredibly impressive Jalen Duran dunk aside, I think that this was a really solid showing for Chet in the second round. And he'll certainly have his hands full in this next game against Arkansas with Arkansas prospect Jalen Williams on the horizon, who you have talked about before and we have talked about before on this podcast. Yeah. And so all year, Chet has been my number one prospect and I really haven't wavered on that. Um, I was really excited going into that Memphis game to see what it looked like. And from the sound of it, I came out way more encouraged than you did. I thought that Duran struggled with Chet's length way more than Chet struggled with Duran's strength. And that that one play that you're talking about, I, I, I... I have seen a lot of people on social media, shocker, them taking things out of context, <laughs> blowing that up to, oh my God, look at how soft Chet is. He's so tiny. He can't do this. And Duran had four fouls as late in the game. Chet flopped to try and draw the fifth and then Duran dunked on him. That's all it was. Chet even got yeah. got a flop warning. So it's like everything about this is showing that that has nothing to do with Chet's strength or whatever. Yes, Chet is skinny, but if you watch that whole game, he's actively guiding 
like ushering guys to where he wants them to go and dictating what he wants them to do. Yes, they will push him under the basket, but then he uses his length to recover. Yes, they will, you know, move him off his spot, but his timing, his verticality, his sense of ball location on his blocks is superb and some of the best we've seen in a really long time. And not to mention, he is competitive as hell. He has no quit mm-hmm. in them. He fights every time. He knows exactly what his body is. He doesn't think he's Jalen Duran out there. He's not out there trying to overpower guys. He's out there using his savvy, his awareness, his length to move guys to where they to where he wants them to go so he can deter their shots, so he can affect it and send it back a lot of the time. So I thought that game as a whole was really encouraging for Chet. Even the, the play where Malcolm Dandridge actually posterized Chet, um, I thought Chet's second jump there was super impressive because it came from him him dislodging from Dandridge, rotating over to the drive, staying vertical, forcing the pass out of the shot, and then immediately recovering and trying to block Dandridge. He was half a second late, missed the block, fouled him, but the speed, the relocation um, defensively, I thought that was all super encouraging. And then he even had a bad offensive night, but the impact was still there with his pass and the ball movement, how he ran in transition, and then just like the, the baseline lobs. So Yes, he didn't have the most impressive statistical game, but I thought overall his impact was super encouraging. Yeah, I want to be clear. I was very impressed with Chet in this game. I was trying to present the perspective of the people who are out on Chet will look at that one play, will look at the less impressive box score line and ignore the fact that the Gonzaga defense was miles different with him on the court than off the court. And also, as you mentioned his awareness of his current body and current skill set was also on display in the sense that he seemed like he knew what he could do against Duran and what he couldn't. And, you know, as you mentioned, the flop boarding that he got on that play, it wasn't the prettiest maneuver, but he was trying to help out his defense by getting Duran out of the game. And certainly given how close that game ended up being, it would have been huge for Memphis to be forced to play the final few minutes of the game with Duran on the bench. Yeah, exactly. And so I, that, that's all I took away from that play was he knows the situation and he's trying to get Memphis's best player out of the game in a close game that shouldn't have been that close. Um, but going into the Sweet 16, I'm really excited to see how he handles Jalen Williams because the, him and Duran are completely different players. And I would say Jalen Williams' play style is even a little more similar to Chet, even though that physically they're obviously very different. Yeah, I mean, it's more of the sort of, I don't like using the word finesse because people tend to take it the wrong way, but finesse big men versus power big men. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that will drag, or I think Williams's kind of versatility in the pick and roll will inevitably drag Chet out to the perimeter a little more. So I'm excited to see how he, you know, to see him defend on the perimeter a little more. We've seen plenty throughout the year, and I think he's relatively fine at that. Um, not necessarily cutting guys off on their drives, but staying within arm's length to where he can recover and still contest the shot. And all season, Williams has been one of the best guys at drawing fouls, especially on the defensive end. So how Chet handles that and 
you know, how, how creative he can be countering Williams's defensive kind of instincts, I, I think it's going to be really telling and really um, kind of instructive to see the overall versatility of Chet's game because the disparity in Duran's game and Williams's couldn't be much more different in seeing that kind of in seeing Chet go up against that in back-to-back games should be really fascinating. So before we move on to the next matchup, just wanted to talk about a couple of other Gonzaga guys really quickly. Mm-hmm. Andrew Nemhart basically closed out that Gonzaga Memphis game, just ice in his veins, free throws, no problem. And he's someone who is probably going to be a second round pick this year. I think that there will at least be enough teams that are interested in the skill set that he has that he'll go in the second round. And Drew Timmy certainly put up a ton of points in that game. And he as well, I think, is someone who there are definitely flaws to his game. But I think that some NBA team will look at him with a late second round pick and just say, you know what, if this works out, we can get a guy who can put up some points off the bench and not hurt us too much on defense, why not take a flyer on him? So I think that both Timmy and Nemhard are probably going to be second round picks. I think that I would bet on Nemhard more than I'd bet on Timmy, but I think that's sort of where their stock ends up at this point. With Julian Strother, I think at this point, he's more of a 2023-2024 type prospect than he is likely to go out this year. But if he does declare this year, I could definitely see similar to the other two guys, definitely see a situation where some team just takes a flyer on him late in the second round. Yeah. And out of that grouping, I definitely like Nemhard the most Um, for this year. Long-term, I like Strother the most, but earlier in the year, he was kind of being talked about as a potential first rounder. And then the shooting consistency kind of fell off a cliff. Um, Love him as a cutter, love his shooting um, long-term. And I really like his rebounding as well. But like you said, he's probably a next year guy. Nemhard is just your kind of prototypical backup NBA point guard. The way the way he closed out that game was super impressive. He's been a really good passer, solid shooter all season. And Timmy, I, I I just don't get it in terms of an NBA standpoint. I definitely agree that I wouldn't be surprised if an NBA team took a swing on him in the second round because his post footwork, his touch, and like that kind of mid range floater area and in is super impressive. Um, but defensively and from outside, I don't see what kind of value he he really provides. Um, but as like a third big off the bench who can kind of provide a different scoring look, I guess. Yeah. My guess is that Timmy gets a cup of coffee in the NBA and then makes a serious career for himself in Europe. Like if I had to project yeah. it, that's sort of where I'm at with it. Yeah. I, I, I could see him making really good money over in Europe. And, you know, just when we say that it's not an insult, European basketball is really good uh, right now. So I, I definitely could see him making a, a really you know, solid career over in either in Europe or down in Australia. All right. So the next matchup we have here is Duke versus Texas Tech. And for Duke, the prospects are pretty clear. Paulo Boncaro, first of all, you said that you have had Chet at number one pretty consistently all season long. I started the season with Paulo as my number one prospect. I've lowered him a bit, but I still believe that he's a clear top five pick, top mm-hmm. five talent in this draft. And AJ Griffin as well is someone who coming into the year was seen as a top five, top 10 kind of prospect. Then 
injury concerns. We thought he was going to miss a lot more time than he ended up missing at the beginning of the year, but it took a few games for him to work his way into the dupe rotation. And in December or so, it kind of seemed to me anyway, like he and Damian Collins at Kentucky were on similar paths where they're really highly touted prospects who have incredible positives to their game, but just aren't going to get enough playing time to actually work themselves into draft consideration. And from that point forward, Collins's minutes disappeared and AJ Griffin basically became a starter and has re-solidified himself as someone who is a pretty clear top 10 prospect in this draft. And then the third dookie that I wanted to talk about here is Mark Williams, who we recently mocked at number 14 overall to the Charlotte Hornets. I don't think he's all that likely to go in the lottery, but Charlotte was just too perfect a fit to pass up for him. But certainly there are going to be teams in the late teens, early 20s who need a defensive center that are going to be looking at Mark Williams. Yeah, and I I, I get the intrigue with Paolo. I get why a lot of people have him number one. There's so much to like. And the these first two games of the tournament, he's been incredible. And the where he's best at on offense is when he's kind of operating from the elbow and attacking downhill because at his size, his combination of skill, athleticism, balance um, is really, really unique. And when he kind of strings together a jab step, a rip through and a spin, he's almost unstoppable because either he's too big for smaller defenders to contain, uh, too quick for bigger defenders to keep up with. And even when you do get that unique kind of combination of defender who can stay with him, he also has the passing vision and accuracy where he can set up cutters or shooters out of those drives. And we've really seen that a lot these last couple games. So if he continues to show a lot of that, um, especially against a really disciplined and physical Texas Tech defense, that that could do wonders um, for him because he, we, we've seen a lot of flashes from him. My biggest issue with him all season has been kind of the inconsistencies of effort where it seems like he coasts for long stretches. I think that really shows up in his rebounding numbers and his off ball defense, which are, you know, two of my bigger concerns, but the, the combination of athleticism and skill is really undeniable. What AJ Griffin has done this year has been awesome. Uh, we, we all thought that he was going to miss maybe half the year with that. Yeah, like months. <laughs> yeah. And then he just quietly sneaks back onto the court and is shooting over 50% from three on volume for most of the season. I, I really don't know what to do with him because it feels like there's so much more to his game, but given his role, he's kind of limited as just an off ball shooter. So I feel like he's going to be one of these guys who once he gets to the NBA and, you know, kind of matures a little bit more, there's going to be a lot more kind of on ball scoring and creation from him that we see in the long run that we've gotten to see almost nothing of at Duke. And then Mark Williams, I think is the most NBA ready big man um, in the country right now. I, I think his defensive footwork is incredible. His rim protection is perfect. He's really good in the pick and roll, his awareness. He's an underrated passer. I think he has a little bit more of more of a post game than he's kind of been allowed to show where he's been used almost exclusively as a rim runner. But in the tournament so far, we've seen him utilize a, like a really strong crab dribble into a scoop finish. We even saw like a, a Dirk-esque uh, post fade. 
And then running in transition, I'm not sure there's another center in the country who's better than him at that. It's really interesting because with Mark Williams, the NBA fit is incredibly obvious. You look at his yeah. defensive skill set, you look at his rim running abilities, and basically every team in the NBA could use him in a pretty sizable role. And some teams like Charlotte could just slot him in as a starting center basically right away and instantly shore up their terrible defense and terrible rebounding. It's funny that Paulo and AJ, I think of very, very differently from Williams in the sense that with Williams, the NBA translation is very clear. Yeah. With AJ Griffin, the NBA translation at a baseline level is pretty clear just in terms of what he's shown this year. Okay, he's an absolute sniper from deep. He's a really good athlete who has good defensive potential. Easy to see the fit there. But with AJ, unlike with Mark Williams, there's this sort of peak potential upside that is crazy high. Maybe, I mean, you could argue that he has one of the highest upsides, if not the highest upside in this draft, if everything goes right for him. And very similarly with Paulo, his ability to generate his own buckets while also being a really solid playmaker out of the post at 6'10", he is someone who has the ceiling of being like an all-star, all-NBA type player. But the inconsistencies on defense are going to be dramatic. And, you know, if he isn't paired with some big man who can clean up a ton of his mistakes on that end of the floor, it could look really ugly early on for Apollo, especially if he does continue to sort of float on defense at the NBA level as he has at Duke. So it's really interesting because with Mark Williams, there's, you know, a pretty narrow band of like, this is his skill set, and mm-hmm. it's going to translate to the NBA, but maybe he makes an all defense team or two, but I don't think he's going to be an all NBA center at any point in his career. Right. But with Paulo and AJ, it's very easy to see them being all NBA players and with Paulo in particular, it's also very easy to see him being incredibly disappointing at the next level, just given everything that he's shown in his high school and Duke career. Yeah, and when we when we talk about Paulo's, you know, underwhelming defense, let's say, um, I, I think it's an even more testament to how good Mark Williams has been backing him up and how much mm-hmm. he's cleaned up just because and he I think he I think Mike Schmitz tweeted out that he has a nine nine eight standing reach um and like a seven nine wingspan which is absurd um it's incredible length and just his awareness and positioning really covers up a lot for that defense i yeah and the 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 highs and lows for paulo i think are so dramatic um because when when things are clicking and like they have been these first two games it's obvious like how good this guy can be. And it's, yeah. this, this is absurd. Like what he's doing, his movement, his passing, his shooting, the, the interior scoring, the strength, the speed, the burst, all of it, it, it's overwhelming. And then you just completely see him fall asleep off ball on defense and do nothing. So it's, okay, are you going to be a really high level contributor to winning basketball? Or are you going to be a guy that just puts up ridiculous numbers for your whole career? But you know, you, you don't do a whole lot in terms of chasing a title. So his career, I, I, I don't, I would be stunned if he's a bad NBA player. Um, and I don't, I know you're not saying that at all, but the upside is going to be really interesting because I, I think fit and how teams build around him is going to be super important. Entering the season, I, I really wanted there to be 
some signs that he could kind of play small ball five, but I, I, I don't think that's even close to being a possibility at this point. So let's move over to the other side of this matchup and look at the Texas Tech roster. So you wanted to talk about Kevin McCuller, who's had a pretty strong tournament so far. In terms of other prospects, they have Terrence Shannon Jr., who readers of the No Ceilings NBA website know I am quite a big fan of Terrence Shannon Jr. And then Adonis Arms, who is someone who... I think about, it's funny because when I was putting his name down to discuss in this podcast, the first thought that came into my mind was our discussion of Oshai Agbaji last week and how so many players are given the three and D label when they can't quite do one of those things. And Adonis is an exceptional defender, but he just can't knock down three pointers at the level that he needs to, to be sort of seen in that three and D light. So you know, maybe a team takes a flyer on him with a summer league contract or maybe even a late, late second round pick, but he will need to turn that shooting around drastically to be an NBA player. That being said, if he does, his defense is quite spectacular. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of want to start with Taron Shannon Jr. Um, because he's probably the biggest name prospect on this team. He's kind of like Igbaji. He's been one of these guys that you and I have wanted to go pro for the last couple of years. Unlike Igbaji, at least in my eyes, Shannon hasn't shown the same level of improvement and development to his game. Um, it's a little unfair to him for this season because I, I think he was kind of plagued with nagging injuries. It didn't really help him get into a rhythm or really carve out a role and kind of missed a, a good amount of time earlier. But I, I've just been disappointed. And maybe that's just a symptom of having really high expectations for him. But on, on this team right now, I think Kevin McCullough might be the best pro prospect on Texas Tech. The way he defends is really incredible. Um, just he's a, he's a really strong player, great footwork, great hands, um, moves his feet well, really good awareness. I, I definitely see him as an NBA defender and think he could pretty much defend, be a positive defender in an NBA rotation in his first year or two. But it's what he does on the offensive end and if he can stay healthy. So kind of similar to Shannon, he's really struggled with injuries this year. But he every or not everything, because that team has a lot of really good defenders. But a lot of what they do defensively is because of McCuller and how he kind of leads and guides that defense. I admittedly am biased on this, but I do want to push back on the Shannon point a bit. I think he's done a lot more with the ball in his hands this year than sure. he had in previous seasons. He's shown that he's a better playmaker for others than he had in previous years. His three-point percentage has also jumped up a bit. He was at 36% last year. He ended this season at 39% and also slightly upped his volume of attempts per game from long range. So I think he's shown enough in those two areas that I'm encouraged about his development, but certainly his injury made it really difficult for him to just stay consistently on the court and provide the sort of all season long, consistent, solid play from a sort of combo guard spot that we've seen out of Ibaji this year. Yeah, and I'm not saying that he hasn't improved at all, but coming into the season, we were hoping for a big jump in his game where so many of us had him pegged as a potential first round pick entering the season. And now it's like, is he better off just going back to Texas Tech for another year or, you know, potentially trying to be a second round pick? So, you know, I, I think it's it's more of a kind of expectations versus reality type thing um, for me. 
but I, and I, I definitely get the intrigue. I want him to be good. I think there is a lot there because I'm his physical profile and athleticism and all that is really, really intriguing and produces, you know, he's a really good basketball player. I was just hoping entering the season for, you know, a bigger jump, like we saw from Johnny Davis or Jaden Ivey and, you know, where, where we would see Shannon string together these flashes that we saw his first two seasons into a consistently productive and like really, really impactful player. So let's move on now to the next matchup. And on one side of this matchup, we have the Arizona Wildcats, who their pro prospects, certainly the biggest name for them has been Benedict Matherin, who also was obviously vital for them in their win over TCU in the round of 32. Additionally, on this Arizona squad, we have Christian Coloco, who I don't have at the Mark Williams level, but certainly he's one of yeah. the top center prospects in this draft. And we've talked about him in conjunction with Ismail Kamagate and Mark Williams on here. But just to sort of bring him up in his own context, he's been a huge part of this season for Arizona. And finally, Dalen Terry, who has really sort of exploded over the past few weeks, due mostly to Kirk Reese's injury and him getting more playing time because of that. With Terry, I think he's probably going to be more of a 2023 prospect unless someone really falls in love with him in this tournament and he gets like a first round promise or something. I don't think that's all that likely, but with Matherin, I've been high on him all year long and I think he's just continued to prove that he can be exactly the kind of player that I hoped he could be with this tournament run and He's shown more with the ball in his hands this season as compared to last season. But even if he hadn't, he's someone who can be an absolute knockdown three-point shooter. And going back to the point that I referenced with Adonis Arms, with Matherin, he does fit into that 3 and D archetype pretty well. He can do both of those things. It's not just, oh, we hope he gets there at one point. He's already there. And then the question is what else he can do with his game. So I have Matherin pretty firmly in the top 10. I have Coloco as fringe first round, early second round. Terry, I think, probably goes back to school. But, I mean, this Arizona team is certainly one of the best squads in this tournament. They're the team I have picked to win the tournament. I believe you have them picked to win the tournament as well. So, clearly, we believe in this squad and the kind of talent that they can bring to the table. Yeah, and Matherin has been another one of these guys, um, similar to Ivy, where we were hoping for that really big statistical and you know, on floor impact jump entering their sophomore season. And both of them really produced at a high level. And Matherin's been doing this all season long. He had a huge game against TCU, but his translation to the NBA is really easy to envision because he's a lethal off ball shooter, awesome athlete, and a really, really good defender when he locks in. You know, that that the defensive consistency needs to improve a little bit, but he's shown enough of you know, enough stretches where it's like, okay, this guy can really defend that I'm not really that worried about it. Coloco might be one of the best defensive centers in the country. Um, I, I know that sounds like a cliche at this point, whenever we bring up Walker Kessler or Mark Williams or Coloco, but those three guys have been really good all season. And Coloco's defense, um, he moves really well, really good rim protector and really good rim runner. I love how he runs in transition and gets that really early seal and pretty pretty much creates an effortless entry pass. And then Dale and Terry, it wouldn't actually surprise me if he went out this year. 
it would really feel, I know for a lot of people, it would feel um, rushed, but given his size, his defense, like everything he's been doing these past two, three weeks is felt pretty reminiscent of what he did all season. It's just been on a much bigger role. I don't think the shot's still quite as good as it's been recently, but that size, the defense, i he's such a good passer, especially finding cutters, and I love the attitude he plays with. So it would if they really make that championship run and he continues to be this impactful on a nightly basis, it wouldn't surprise me if we see like a Dante DiVincenzo-esque leap in draft boards from him because I, the, the tools and the foundation of an NBA player are a hundred percent there. It's just, I think really going to depend on does he get a promise or does he think that he can play himself into kind of top 10 consideration if he goes back for another year? Yeah. Those I think are the two considerations. The first being if he thinks that he can return and come back and be a lottery guy, then yeah, sure. Go ahead and do that. But if Arizona ends up winning the national championship or make a run to the national championship game and Dale and Terry is a huge part of that, then yeah, I could definitely see a team falling in love with him and saying, screw it. Instead of risking that he comes back next year and his stock blows up and we can't get to him, we're going to give him a promise at 26, you know, come out, declare for the draft. We will take you at 26. Then, you know, my view on this is if a prospect gets a first round promise, they should take it unless they unless they had like an injury or well actually no that's the flip side is if they had an injury they should definitely take that first round promise i mean just in the sense that you have to be so confident especially with you know how injuries can destroy these kind of things you have to be so confident that you're going back and boosting yourself from the late 20s to top 10 status and the number of players you can confidently say that about is basically one or two maybe every year at most. I mean, Benedict Matherin and Jaden Ivey were the two guys that everybody thought, hey, they come back and they can go from late first round guy to top pick. And Mm -hmm. they're almost certainly both going to go in the top 10. So looks like it worked out for them. But a lot of times you also get the flip side of that, of Alex Poitras coming back to Kentucky again and again and again and again and just not getting that top 10 pick status that he was hoping for. Yeah, and and when you watch Terry's game, I mean, it's not hard to think about an NBA executive really buying in on it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty close to buying in on it. Tyler Rucker on the No Ceilings podcast said that he, at this moment, would consider taking him in the first round. That's still just a little rich for me, given where Terry's shot is at. But I don't think it's super far away. So if, if I really believed in my developmental staff um, and, you know, especially my shooting coaches, I, I would not be opposed to taking him in that 25 to 30 range. So on the flip side of this matchup, we have the Houston Cougars and Jamal Sheed is someone who maybe is a late second round flyer type, but this Houston team doesn't really have any sort of headline prospects. What they have instead is an incredibly well put together squad that won 31 games this year and has a good chance to put some fear into this Arizona team, especially after their close escape versus TCU. But in terms of prospects, it's really just, do you believe in Jamal Sheed enough to consider him at the back end of the second round? And I'm not quite there, but I wouldn't... There are certainly players that I would be 
objecting to more if they were taken than Jamal Sheed. There are definitely worse flyers that you could take than him, but I don't really think of him as a second round guy personally. Yeah, and I, I think he's he would be better off returning for another year. And he saw a huge leap in role this season compared to last. And and the the, the playmaking really stands out. I with averaging five point nine assists to one point nine turnovers, that's an awesome ratio. But the scoring and the shooting percentages just aren't really where you want them to be with and 41, 30, 79 shooting splits at six one, one ninety. That's I, I don't think that's good enough. Um, for this year so I think going back would be really really big for him um, especially if he can bump those up to like 45 and 35 uh, respectively and then I think with them it's like okay now now where are we at with him and now we can start talking top 50 top 40 potentially Um, but other than him you know I think earlier in the year Marcus Sasser was was you know the name but then of course injuries um so it, it, it will be really interesting to see kind of what he does even though unfortunately we're not getting to see him yeah i assume that sasser comes back just because Same. it's really hard to go from being injured and not playing down the stretch of the season if you were kind of a fringe guy like if say aj griffin had sat out the whole year i think that there would definitely still be teams that would take him in the first round if he declared and that's even with AJ Griffin having had serious injury issues in high school as well. But yeah. with Sasser, he wasn't someone who was, you know, clear top 10 guy and then didn't play because of injury. I think for him, he pretty much has to come back next year to sort of improve that stock. And with Sheed, I mean, you know, my thoughts on partial free throw truthing. I think the fact that he is a 80% free throw shooter basically mm-hmm. means that I think he has good enough touch that I could see that three-point percentage in particular improving, but it does need to go up given concerns about his size in particular. But especially as you mentioned, giving his passing, I definitely think there's something there worth looking at. Yeah, And it's probably more of a next year thing than a this year thing. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back and is a, a really good shooter. I, I just need to see a little more of it, um, especially at that size, because if, if you're really struggling to score um, consistently and you know, you're listed at six one, so you're probably closer to six foot or lower. You know, that that translation to the NBA is just way more difficult. All right. And now let's move to the final sweet sixteen matchup in the top half of the bracket with Villanova, probably not all that surprising being in the sixteen as the number two seed. And the rather surprising number eleven seeded Michigan Wolverines making a charge to the sweet sixteen here and if we're talking about prospects on the michigan side the biggest name is caleb houston who has had a very up and down year for the michigan wolverines and then hunter dickinson who probably isn't a this year prospect but certainly had a big game in their previous outing and then third musa diabate who i will not talk all that much about now because i will be talking about him quite a bit more later for those who might be interested, but certainly someone who had a very good game in Michigan's previous outing against Tennessee and someone who is definitely worth considering as a prospect, both for this year and for going forward. But definitely the headline name there is Houston, who again, has had a bit of an up and down year, but if Michigan can continue on a run and Houston plays a big enough part in that, that could certainly do a lot to restore his draft stock to the sort of 
top 10-ish levels where he was being discussed in the pre-draft process before the season. Yeah, and I, I would still take Houston top 25, top 20 pretty easily. Um, at yeah, this point. I also have him as a first-rounder still at this point. Yeah, and you know we've seen him tumbling down draft boards everywhere. But we, we keep going back to he's really hasn't shot well this season, and that, that's been true given expectations entering the year, but he's still driven that percentage back up to 36% on five attempts a game at almost 80% from the line. So all of that, I think, is really encouraging. I think his basketball IQ is pretty evident. He moves really well off ball. And then I really like his passing, too. The defense at the start of the year was an issue. But as the years progressed, I think that's really gotten better. So at that size, the shooting potential, um, I, I think the I would be pretty surprised if he's not a good shooter at the next level. I think all of that is more than enough to be a top 20, top 25 pick. Um, at worst, um, especially in this draft. Uh, Musa Diabate, I think, is he, he's one of these guys who's going to be fascinating come decision time because it wouldn't surprise me if he comes back for a sophomore season and just really takes a big leap, especially if that jumper improves because uh, it definitely needs to. But his defensive versatility, um, his rebounding, his physicality, his athleticism, it's all stuff that I absolutely adore and I would be willing to take a swing on in that 25 to 30 range. And then Hunter Dickinson is really tough and it's he was born 15 years too late. Um, yeah. the Him I, and Timmy, honestly, were born 15 years too late. Yeah, so I'm, Dickinson is huge, but he moves like it. Um, he's a lefty and... I'm not sure anyone has a more reliable kind of post scoring option than his kind of turnaround left-handed hook shot, which he's money on every time, but he never goes to his right. So he's super easy to defend. Uh, This year he started going to his right a little more, but still not enough. The shot is kind of actually intriguing. Um, He's been more willing to shoot from outside and the results haven't been horrible. So I, I think eventually, you know, long-term, that will be an option for him. And then he's a really, really good passer too. Um, I, I know it doesn't always show up, but his ability to pass out doubles or pass from the top of the key, it's super impressive. His biggest issue is he is stiff as hell and moves really poorly defensively. So I don't know if he just doesn't stretch ever. He needs to start doing yoga, loosen <laughs> up those hips because he he moves so poorly on the defensive end. So it. I think he should come back for, to school for another year, uh, show more consistency in that jumper and show some sort of agility defensively. Um, and then, you know, I, I think second round could be, you know, a, a future option for him. I think the jumper is going to be the key thing there because he just needs to be so good on offense to overcome his limitations on defense even if he does get a little bit more limber, he's still not exactly going to be the quickest guy in the world. And certainly that's easier to see when you see him next to Musa Diabate and how well he moves around the floor on that end. But who knows if Dickinson can be good enough on offense, there are certainly spots in the NBA for 10 minute a game backup centers who can stretch the floor and punish opposing big men in the post. So he's got a shot longer term, but I think he really does need that shot to, come around from three-point range to be able to make something of himself at the NBA level. Yeah, for, for sure. And then, unfortunately for him, this Villanova team is not a great matchup because they will probably go small. And even when they don't go small, their bigs are kind of small, um, at least operate more on the perimeter and will 
drag him out to space. So I, I don't expect him to have an overwhelming uh, showing. So let's now move over to that Villanova side and talk about the prospects that they have. So Colin Gillespie is kind of the headliner, especially in terms of scoring and scoring versatility. He's a 42% three-point shooter on seven attempts per game. That's clearly something that's going to translate. The question is really whether he's going to be good enough in the areas of the game outside of shooting to continue to stay on the floor at the NBA level. But certainly the three-point shot is there and a huge weapon for him. And then the other prospect that I wanted to discuss, mostly as a lament, is Jermaine Samuels, who... He is someone who I was very high on coming into the year, especially after his 37% shooting from three-point range last season. I thought he was someone who could fill a lot of boxes for a team as a 6-7 forward type, can play really good defense, can fill a lot of gaps for a team. But he needed that shot to be there for him to be an NBA prospect, especially as a 23-year-old fifth-year senior. And he shot 27% from deep this year. So... I think the trains probably left the station on him as an NBA prospect just because the shot isn't good enough, but he's someone who I was very intrigued about coming into the year. And if only he'd been able to knock down a few more three pointers, he could have had a chance at an NBA roster, but sadly he had a bad three point shooting season at exactly the worst possible time. Yeah. I'm not sure there's anyone I'd necessarily use draft capital on this Villanova team, but it wouldn't surprise me if Gillespie or Justin Moore or um, Samuels end up making a roster. I, I think probably three of those guys will potentially get at least like a summer league invite um, because, you know, they're Villanova guys. So they obviously know how to play. They can do a little bit of everything. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if any of them end up making a team. I'm just not sure that I would be willing to spend draft capital on any of them at this point. Yeah, I could definitely see Samuels going down the route of being an undrafted guy who just works his way into being a ninth man by being a really good defender who makes the right reads as a passer as well as being a switchable guy on defense. But that's, I think, going to be the path for him at this point, whereas I think he could have definitely been a second-round guy if he'd shot better from three-point range this year. Yeah, and, and that outside jumper is all of it. Um, I also want to mention Brandon Slater on that team. Mm. Um, I Again, unfortunately, the shooting at the beginning of the season has kind of fallen off a little bit, but really physical defender, potential 3 and D wing, uh, would be shocked at this point if he got drafted, um, but kind of falls into that same Samuels role of does a little bit of everything on the wing. All right, so that is the first half of our Sweet 16 prospect preview. We will have part two go up sometime tomorrow, so definitely be on the lookout for that if you're a North Carolina, UCLA, Purdue, Kansas, Providence, Iowa State, Miami, or even a St. Peter's fan. We will cover those teams in tomorrow's episode, but we're going to wrap it up here for today. Tyler, anything else before we close things out? No, just... Really enjoyed these games. They're a lot of fun, and not every game has life or death consequences to it. And not every tournament game tell, gives you the whole picture of what a prospect is. So just, I can't emphasize enough. Don't don't take too much stock one way or the other in these games. Uh, and then also go check out everything No Ceilings. Uh, Nick, I'm really excited for that Musa Diabate piece. Thank you. Thank you. As Tyler just said, I will in fact be doing a Musa Diabate piece, which will go out on Thursday. So after our next episode, I'll shamelessly plug that again, even though we won't be talking about Michigan, but hey, that's kind of how things are. 
All right, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1, as well as finding his work on No Ceilings, NBA, Hashtag Basketball, and Canis Hoopas. Thank you again, Tyler, for the unsolicited plug. Much appreciated. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and you can find my written work on No Ceilings, NBA, as well as Hashtag Basketball and Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.